Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. Today's guest is William Gardner. William Gardner is a he's a philosopher. He's a gadfly, a social critic. He oh man, this guy's pretty unreal, man. And one thing that I love about him is he's very much on his side of things, which one would deduce as being on the right side uh, on the political spectrum. That said, he's he really does try to incite people in his arguments, and I think he's trying to stir a reaction. And in this conversation, it's uh, uh, one one thing that we believe here is is that. I kind of want to get away from this right and wrong thinking mentality and move towards a state of just understanding one another, understanding where they're coming from and questioning that in, in a, in a non, in as non-biased a way as possible. Do I agree with everything that he says? I, I don't, I really don't. And I identify that, but I also identify that getting upset with the things that I disagree with, won't actually help anybody. It won't help to promote understanding. It won't help to advance a conversation. It just doesn't help when we shut people down. And in this conversation, uh, you know, I've avoided that and he's avoided that. And we've kind of just accepted uh, each other where we're at at certain points in this conversation. And this is something that I, I haven't mastered in my life. Uh, Sometimes I've agreed with people when I shouldn't have. And sometimes you can agree with somebody without even saying that you agree, but just in your silence. And I know I've done that. And I haven't spoken up against things when I should have. And that's something that I want to get better at. Rather than dwell on the past, I'm looking toward the future. And that's something that I want to encourage you, the listener, to do as well. Because you will get lots out of it. And when we have these conversations, moving away from this right-wrong mentality and moving towards a point of understanding and hopefully of educating each other. His book, William Gardner's book, The Great Divide, looks at why liberals and conservatives will never agree and how they kind of need each other. And again, this is something that we talk about. So I, I greatly enjoyed this conversation. I know you might notice that I'm not as quick uh, in sort of my rebuttals or where I go with the conversation as I am with someone that perhaps say I agree with more, but I got a lot out of it and I know you will too. So I hope you enjoy. Please be sure to drop us a line. You can find us at Instagram. Uh, our tag is probably wrong about everything and we look forward to hearing from you. Have a wonderful day. And take care. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind, and you're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. All right, we have with us William Gardner, um, a, a conservative gadfly, as he's been described by others, but a man who, who definitely has, your mission is to encourage conversations it's not to shut them down uh for sure yeah uh, i think it's the healthiest thing we can do as a people is to keep the conversation going and in my last political book which was the great divide the subtitle was 
why liberals and conservatives will never ever agree. And some people said, what are you talking about? They will never agree. And the point of the book was that, okay, let me give you an image. There's a guy standing out on the street and it's a beautiful day and he sees these gorgeous buildings and suddenly the ground starts to shake, the buildings start to fall. And he says, oh my God, it's an earthquake. And I say to him, no, it's not an earthquake. It's the consequences of the earthquake. The earthquake is actually invisible. It's way beneath the ground and the grinding of these tectonic forces that are causing the rubble at the surface. My book, The Great Divide, is an attempt to expose people to uh, the idea that the rubble, the political and the moral rubble, which we are experiencing in our daily life in this country, you can see it in any newspaper or you know, TV show, is being caused by invisible forces, which are like those tectonic plates, but you can't see them until you read a book like The Great Divide, which reveals them to you and helps you to see what the forces are. And it so happens that quite a few of those forces divide liberals and conservatives from each other for fundamental reasons. And I'll just give you one and then over to you. The typical modern liberal, and when I say, mo I say modern liberal intentionally because a true liberal has nothing to do with a modern liberal. A true liberal is someone who very much associates himself with the foundation of liberty. A good political society is grounded in the liberty of all, not just the liberty of me, but the liberty of our whole society. And of course, there's an implication that you need order in a liberate society, uh, free society too. You can't just have you know, freedom, everybody running around yeah. shouting about freedom without order. So that was the classical liberal. But somehow over the last 50 years or so, that foundation has shifted in the West to a foundation of forced equality. That has become more important in the minds of the public than a foundation of individual or civil liberty. At any rate, I'll just give you an example of why a liberal and a conservative will never agree, for example, about what you might think would be a simple concept like human nature. And there's a chapter in The Great Divide on human nature about this difference. The typical modern liberal will say that human nature is incredibly malleable. We can change human nature through policy and law, legislation and court decisions. We can change the nature of our society. This is the foundation of all modern revolutions. This mm -hmm. belief that human nature is, is unlimited in its malleability. The conservative, what I call the true conservative, again, because I don't like the way we use the word conservative for right. some of our parties. For example, in Canada, someone who calls himself a political conservative may very well be a modern liberal in many moral aspects. You don't know until you start cross-examining them. But what I call a true conservative would tend to believe that human nature is more or less fixed and has been right. for all time. From Aristotle forward, you know, human nature is pretty much the same. You can't change it through policy and law. On the contrary, policy and law should be adapted to what we know human nature to be. That would be the conservative position. And of course, if you go out to a restaurant and you meet someone who says he's a true conservative, the first thing he will tell you is stop trying to change everything. 
I know it's not I know it's not perfect, but it's okay as it is. It's been here for 300 years. Please right. leave it alone. Whereas the modern liberal will be immediately be saying, no, no, we have to change it. We have to overturn the whole damn thing, start a new, create new institutions, you know, perfect society. Well, the conservative view is you can't perfect society ever because you can't perfect a human being. Human beings are fallible by nature. Right. Christian would say sinful by nature. I'm not going that far in the show. I'm just saying fallible by nature, prone to error, prone to poor judgment, uh, for which we need a strong civil society. Uh, many conservatives would say you also need a strong religion with moral beliefs embedded in it because morality sits on top of religion and politics sits on top of morality. That's the kind of way things ought to be ordered. So this is a huge disagreement between the modern liberal and the modern conservative, you see. Can human nature be changed or not? If you believe one or the other, you can't you can't merge those two positions. Now now sort of one thing that uh I, I kind of question about is is inclusivity. You know, when you are friends with people that are different than you, you start to realize that you're more alike than you are dissimilar. Would yeah. you? Yeah. So yeah. Wh- where do we go with that? I mean, you in your previous interview, you're talking about, you know, homosexual rights and all that stuff and how, you know, conservatives, but then, but then you said we all have equal rights. The problem is, is when there's this kind of element of mandatory tolerance, because in, in my view, mandatory tolerance does breed resentment. And we're seeing that with cancel culture, right? This yeah. sort of, you need to say that. And if you say this, there's consequences. Well, in many ways in, in, in forums, cancel culture is creating the radicalization of the right. Like it's this weird marriage that's happening there. Would you, would you agree that, that this sort of this left sort of, um, socialist uh and again you know keep in mind i i identify as someone who's who's liberal right who believes that people can change you mean but I f- you mean modern liberal not you're not a classical liberal no i yeah you're a modern liberal and you know what my friend i'll be honest william i'm not too sure i'm not dead set on exactly what i am but i do know that equality and equity you know there's that can make society better I'd like to talk about those when you're ready, but go ahead. I don't want to interrupt you. Okay, well. The difference in those two words, I mean. Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll finish by saying that I believe mandatory tolerance breeds resentment, you know, when, when we're forced to think a certain way. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, again, I go, I'm a, I'm conservative-minded, not in the political sense. I don't join parties. I'm not a modern conservative, uh, just because I don't like the brush they're painted with. I'm a, what I call a true conservative. That began with Aristotle in the West, really. Mm-hmm. Runs right up into Edmund Burke, for example, in the 18th century, and other people like Roger Scruton in this century, who are what I call true conservatives. At any rate, um, where were we? You asked me a question, and I just lost the thread. But uh, you were leading up, I think, to this equality and equity thing, mm-hmm. weren't you? And uh, I wanted to comment on that. Uh, because, you know, in the English language, equity usually refers to what is deserved. Equality Mm -hmm. usually refers to uh, 
inequality of shares of something. Uh, for example, suppose you're a man with five kids like me. I want to be equal to all my, I want to treat all my kids equally. But if one of them misbehaves and becomes a moral criminal of some kind, I'm not going to do that. I will treat him under the rubric of equity. What is deserved? You don't deserve. You don't deserve the same as my other kids deserve because you mistreated your parents, mistreated your siblings, all that kind of stuff, you know? So equity is about what is deserved. Equality is about equal shares of something. And we've been confusing the terms, for example, in the modern slogan, EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusion, right? But we're using the word equity, whereas what we should be using is the word equality, treat people equally. Equity doesn't mean that, it's about what is deserved. And the left in this country has been playing on that um, uh, difference in meaning to say that, well, I do deserve. I deserve more money, I deserve more pay, I deserve more privilege, like you have, for example, you know? In other words, they're using equity to imply some kind of class oppression uh, in their society uh, and therefore, they deserve to be treated differently than everybody else, treated better, given some kind of advantage because they were oppressed in the past or their parents were or some, you know, their people a couple of generations ago were oppressed. This all comes out of the pseudo-Marxist sort of line of thinking that, you know, you don't want to get into Marxism on this show. I happen to have studied it a little bit. I know a little bit about it, but all you have to do to understand cancel culture and everything you just mentioned earlier, all you have to understand is that the main Marxist framework is that there are oppressors and oppressed in no matter what you're talking about, sexual matters, uh, monetary matters, matters of, matters of class, whatever. There's oppressors and oppressed. And the whole deal today of course, there's nothing much to do with true Marxism, which is much more sophisticated than that. But the root of it is this idea. I mean, I remember Marx said, tell me what you have and I'll tell you what you think. Right? The implication was if you have a big, beautiful house and a Mercedes or whatever it is you have, I got a pretty good idea of the way you think about other things because mm -hmm. it means you belong to a certain class in society. Therefore, you're oppressing certain other people who are not at your level and are not paid as much as you. Okay, we're not going to say they're slaves, but you know, there's oppression here. So the word equity is being used improperly, but only for political advantage in that slogan. So will there all there will always be an oppressor and an oppressed? Yeah, that's the Marxist framework. Yeah. But do do you do you agree with that? Do you think that there will always be oppressors as, and oppressed? I, I don't I don't disagree that there have been oppressors mm -hmm. and oppressed in history. That's for sure. I think slaves, for example, were oppressed, right. even though some slaves, even back when, figured it was a normal institution. And when they were able to buy their freedom, sometimes they bought slaves themselves. That's how normal it was. Every country in the history of the world has used slavery at one time or another. I mean, not today, but up until very recently. Well, uh, so let's not talk about slavery. It's a whole other very fascinating topic, but right. there's a situation where you have oppressors and oppressed, uh, for sure. But when it comes to, for example, modern feminism, I don't buy it for one minute. Most women, say modern Canadian, American, European women in particular, I'm not talking now about 
peasants in some third world country or whatever, are the wealthiest, best educated, most privileged class of females that have ever existed in the history of the world. Yeah, I, I, I see your point, but I also kind of, I'm not a woman, right? So I've never, I've never known what it's like to experience working as a woman in, you know, as a higher up or whatever. Yeah. But I do know that, that, you know, from what my, my partner tells me that, you know, guys say things that just are very misogynistic. And anytime somebody can say something to you, that sort of, uh, prize on something that's kind of out of your control you being a woman or you being a man or you being of african heritage or you being of european heritage whatever anytime somebody kind of targets that that's a that i mean that's a piss off right and 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 that is a reality so yes you know i i can kind of see what you're saying that that women here have it so well but it's not perfect and there is there is that sort of power struggle and i really think that that's kind of the root of problems is power and yeah. and the reality is how do we relinquish it you know without it being complete chaos well you just put your finger on a good point <laughs> which i'm going to use to respond to you a little bit please which, which is that power is something which exists in all human organizations of course families have a sense of power traditionally it was the man and the who had the power over the family because he he brought the game home, you know, to feed them. And the woman, in other words, he tended to provide and protect, and the woman tended to nurture and care for the children and feed the family and so on. There was, but there was power involved in the family structure. Modern feminists have objected to that for all sorts of reasons, which you're, we can't get into in this show. We don't have enough time. I'd love right, to talk right. to you about it again, like how feminism, so. which began in Sweden, for example, eventually in radical feminism I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that the ordinary woman may have a cause of complaint. I'm talking about radicals who want to change all of society uh, in terms of uh, modern feminist principles. It's a very different thing. Like when I uh, ran my business, uh, we had this government guy come in. Well, first of all, I should preface it by saying when I took over the business from my dad, after a month or so, I noticed that there was a department, one department in the company where we had four people working, two were men and two were women. And uh, I noticed that the women were paid less than the men. And I, I turned to the manager of the department. I said, why? Why are you paying the women less than you pay the men? Aren't they doing exactly the same work? Because if they weren't, I didn't, you know, that's another issue. He said, yeah, they're doing exactly the same work every day. I said, why are they paid less? He said, well, they accepted it. Mm. Pardon? Pardon? Well, they applied for a job, and I don't want to pay more than I have to. When you go to the grocery store, you don't buy the most expensive oranges. If you don't have to, you may get oranges that are just as good for a lesser price. Labor is the same, he said. So they accepted less money. They were happy with it. So that's what I paid them. I said, change their pay. I want them all paid the same. Well, some people would say, oh, boy, that makes you a feminist. Well, it didn't really. It just made me someone who thought that equal work should have equal pay regardless of your sex. Now, let's talk history a little bit. This is not always considered a normal thing to think or to believe in our society. For example, in the 19th century, there was something called the family wage. Anybody with half a brain 
who was an employer would pay a man who was married and had kids more than a, a man who was unmarried and had no kids. That was called a family wage. And it was meant to support a family of five people. That's a big difference in pay. The young men then didn't complain. They said, well, if I want more, I have to get married and have kids and I will get more. But I don't expect you to pay me more just because of my sex. Right. It was about my condition of life. And it was the young individual man back then would say it's better for our society if you pay married men more. How the hell else are they going to feed their kids? Yeah. Right. So it was considered normal. But along came more of the Marxian sort of thing, the radical feminist sort of thing. By the way, a lot of radical feminists, well-known ones in Canada, were uh, self-acknowledged uh, to be yeah. Marxist or had studied Marxism. So here we were applying the oppressor-oppressed uh, paradigm again. Right. At any rate, to, when I paid those women equally to the men, I just thought that it was a good thing to do because they were doing equal work. Before I knew it, like, you know, six months later, some little some little guy from the Department of whatever, whatever in Ontario came marching into my office uh, campaigning for equal pay for work of equal value. And I said, pardon? He said, we need to do a survey of your company and to examine all your departments. I said, for who invited you here? And he showed me the law or whatever, that he had some right to come into my company and examining <laughs> everything I was doing. Yeah. Almost just threw him out. But instead I said, what's the basis of your investigation? He said, equal pay for work of equal value. I said, well, that's different from equal pay for equal work, isn't it? Which is how I paid those two women, see? Right. He said, yes, it is. I said, how do you assess equal value? He said, well, for example, we go into your restaurant. We had a restaurant in our company and uh, we examine the work that the uh, cook is doing in the restaurant. And we compare that to the work, let's say that your maintenance man is doing up in the roof, servicing the air conditioning units and all that and the plumbing and all that stuff. And we rank these types of work. And if they come up with the same number of points, we say it's work of equal value. So he actually tried to make the case that our maintenance man, uh, that our cook deserved the same pay as our maintenance man. And there was about $5,000 a year difference between them. Right. He said, we want you to pay her 5000 more. And I said, why? I said, when I advertised the job, 100 women lined up to be a cook. They love the job. She loves the job. When I advertised for a maintenance man, nobody at her level of pay, nobody came. I didn't want to pay more for the maintenance guy, but I couldn't get anybody more at, at that pay. I had to keep on raising it till finally I got a few applicants and I chose the best one. And that's his pay. Well, Mark writes, you know. A neurosurgeon shouldn't be, or excuse me, a server shouldn't be paid the same as a neurosurgeon. No. Right. But he but he was trying to say, oh no, we are government. Yes. We we can assess the value of these jobs. And I just said, get out of here, you know. <laughs> get out well, of here. And then and then I got pre Premier David Peterson on the phone because mm. he published a paper called the government's green paper on pay equity, which is what they called it. Misusing the word equity again to mean that women as a class are being oppressed by men as a class. You know, and I said, I said, why do you say that? You know what he said? Because women on average make about 75 percent of what men make in Ontario. And I said, well, did you know, because I did the research, I said, did you know, sir, I said that never married men and never married women in Ontario make almost exactly the same pay at every decade of life. In mm -hmm. fact, in the early decades, 
never married women tend to make more than never married men. So what do you have to say about that? You know what he said? He said, oh, well, it's politics. I'm well, well, actually, Jordan Peterson talked about this. Uh, yeah. and, 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 and he's actually, he sees himself as a classical liberalist. And everybody just does a Rorschach test on seeing what he yeah. is. And that's, that's why it's like, oh, Jordan Peterson said this. Anyways, you're kind of like a classical conservative. So the two of you are, are I wish you guys could have a debate or a discussion. Well, I, sent him a copy, I sent him a copy of The Great Divide and he said it's on my desk, but he <laughs> hadn't had time to read it yet. Yeah, he's, he's just, he's, he's exploded. He exploded. Um, yeah. But uh, back to my point is he said something similar that, the reason for that kind of gap in pay is because Marriage. exactly. And, and women have families, yeah. right? But you raise a very good point that if a woman stays unmarried and, you know, follows her career and a man does the same. Exactly that, the same pay all the way through. Yeah. But because there is a bit of discrepancy. I mean, I think about my own family. You say you have five kids yeah. and uh, 15 you know, grandchildren. <laughs> wow. Congrats, man. That's yeah. you're busy. I, I just find that are there inherently things that men are better at than women? You know, and this is a, this is a quagmire that we get ourselves into. It's, it's not really a quagmire. A lot of people do research on this. I wrote a book years ago called The Book of Absolutes. And mm -hmm. one of the chapters is called Brain Sex. It's about mm -hmm. the way in which men and women differ uh, inherently, not just by socialization. Uh, I put a quote at the head of the chapter, and the quote was that, Boys and girls are just as different above the neck as they are below. Right. You know, and the reason is when we do investigations of their brains, how their brains work and their aptitudes, what they're good at by nature, we say, they tend to be quite different. And often my wife and I notice that, for example, one of the things they say in the studies is that uh, if you ask a man where so-and-so is, he'll tend to give you north, south, east, west directions. <laughs> you know, the woman will tend to go by uh, imagery. She'll tend to say, well, you go to the bakery shop and you turn right. And you know the flower shop at the corner, you turn left there and there you are. Uh, you know, very different way of perceiving space. Right. Very different inherent capacities with uh, manipulation of numbers and things like that. And um, affect affections. We had a feminist neighbor when we lived in uh, Unionville. She was a terrific gal, but she had uh, three daughters. And she didn't want them to be socialized so much as girls. So she would buy them boys toys, like, you know, fire engines and stuff like that, yeah. right? Uh, one day she, she gave up with a laugh, I have to say, because she was a lovely girl. She gave up with a laugh, she said, because when she went uh, to kiss her daughter, good night, the daughter had put the fire engine to bed with a bottle. <laughs> right. You know. That kind of nurturing. Yeah, with nurturing and, you know, making a baby out of the fire engine someone I can care for, you know? And, and I think that, uh, you know, please, by all means, correct me on this, but there are, we do make generalizations, especially in regards to gender. I mean, uh, nobody wants to see me with a power tool. Right. But whereas, you know, growing up, it was like, oh yeah, you know, to be a boy, to be a man, you don't cry and you got to go get a good job. You're working in a factory, all this stuff. And that is just never, appealed to me I, I mean i got into education which is a field that you know is still largely dominated by by women yeah my and point you're running, and, and you're running your own podcast you're not sitting in the audience 
Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, I my ADD is just too too feral for me to to be an audience member. The rest of my you life. like you like to lead. You like to take control. Oh, I microphone. see your point. You've got the microphone, not me. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, the goal being, of course, that that you speak as well. But I I do see your point that. Well, the human human species, it's taken, you know, we've been evolving for hundreds, a hundred thousand years, let's just say, right? And there are these sort of these in our sort of our primitive instincts, if you will. And traditionally, primitively speaking, you mentioned it, the man would go hunting and the woman would take care of the shelter. Yeah. But again, that's kind of a, a generalization, sort of like let's just say 95% of of the people did that, but 5% weren't like that. And I guess where I'm going is that not everybody fits into the genderized roles. If you leave them alone, they do. Mm. If you're a modern liberal and you want to change them, then you bring in all kinds of pay equity laws and uh, gender laws and, and laws and rules uh, about pronouns and things like that, because you're trying to re-engineer human life. The true liberal, the true classical liberal, liberal would say, get your foot off my neck, buddy. Get your foot off my neck. I will be what I choose to be, not something that you decide oh. I should be. So a liberal, okay. I, I, I appreciate this free lesson. A liberal, if, the definition of the word is free. You know, freedom. Liber, liber in Latin, free, yeah. Yeah. Whereas a conservative it sounds like, for example, defund the police, right? Getting rid of the police system. That is, that's a very dangerous uh, proposition, right? Yeah, you know, madness, you get- Madness, madness in the streets. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there isn't a colonial element, Do you, like there, there is a colonial element in terms of policing, but again, the road to hell is paved in good intentions. The police was started as a way to keep law and order, yeah. right? And if you're to get rid of that, you know, we saw what happened in the, in the United States in Seattle with that, uh, Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, everywhere. Yeah. It was, it was chaos. Yeah. It still is. Wait till this George Floyd judgment comes out and the guy does not get charged with murder. He'll just Mm -hmm. say, I was doing what the police school taught me how to do. And the guy died. He was a drug addict. He was whatever. He was blah, blah, blah. I, I wasn't trying to kill him. And they'll let him go. They'll charge him with something else. And the streets will be burning again. And the police will back off, afraid to go in and control the public square. I thought it was disgraceful last summer. I'm not saying I agree with any any policeman should be killing anybody, especially an unarmed man. It shouldn't happen. But it did. But then the fact that the police just backed off when the rioters who pretended to be only protesters. In fact, they were mostly rioters, looting, smashing, breaking windows, burning police stations. Please, you know? This is, this is where we disagree, but, you know, respectfully, of course. Yeah. I, All for protesting, by the way. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's a political freedom, right? The ability I mean, to protest. 50 people, that 50 people died last summer. But then, but then, you, think, but then you think about the Capitol Hill, the storm, And and those were all, you know, and then the gun laws. There's just so many, like, 
I, here's what I think, and, 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 and maybe this is something that we agree on, is that democracy is really starting to show its age, at least this manifestation of it. It's really starting to show its age, especially with things like the internet and the way that information is shared. There, there does have to be some adaptations. That's what I believe. I agree with you. I would say it's out of control. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, somebody I read recently, I can't remember the name of the fellow, but his argument was that uh, uh, too many of our modern democracies are just getting too big. And there's a, there's a tipping point where when they're a certain size, they simply can't be managed. I mean, I think he's making a case. They simply can't be managed. There's too much going on, too many people, too many cross purposes, too many different kinds of law across purposes, state laws, federal laws, legislation, judicial state, you know, judgments. I mean, all kinds of stuff, impossible. So people like that are saying, we should reduce the size of some of these countries. Like maybe America should be broken up into five different countries, West, East, Central, Southern, Northern, let them run collections of states. They can run smaller entities and they can have treaties and deals and do business together like they do now, but let's stop pretending that, and I was in Washington a couple of years ago and I've never been there before. I was quite intrigued by it. And I was at this wonderful dinner uh, put on by Encounter Books. They were celebrating all their authors and I'm one of their authors. And so uh, there was this woman standing there and I said, boy, I said, Washington, it's really something. I said, it's like an imperial city. Said, yes, she said, pity, pity, she said. America was never designed to be an empire, an internal empire run from Washington. In fact, in the term United States, the emphasis was on the word states, not on the word United. Now she says the emphasis is on the first word, United States. The federal government, especially through the 14th Amendment, has found all sorts of ways, mostly through the courts, but also through these amendments, to trample on states' rights. So, and by the way, Canada has suffered the same sort of thing. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms basically subordinated Canada's provinces to all sorts of um, quasi-socialistic things like um, uh, medicine, you know, welfare medicine. How did we do it? If Canada's constitution says, and it still does, that medicine is the right of each province, right? And there's no meeting between them. It's the right of each province. How did the government get around that? How did young Trudeau's father get around it? Well, the father was a lot brighter than the son, I have to say, first of all. <laughs> but I didn't but I didn't like what he was doing. You'll hear country. no disagreement with me there. No, but I didn't like what Trudeau Sr. was doing to the country, because what he said was, along with the Gang of Five, Monique Bejean, Pierre Trudeau, mm -hmm. Lalande, and Marchand, and a few other guys. It was all French-Canadian. And they wanted to socialize Canada. So what they said, well, let's start with medicine. The provinces objected and said, medicines are right under the Canadian constitution, which at the time was just the BNA Act. It's a provincial responsibility. So what the Gang of Five said was, well, we have the right to tax everybody. So we're gonna tax the hell out of you a lot more than we were, right? And we're gonna to offer to pay half your medical costs if you come on board with the five conditions of uh, socialized medicine in Canada. 
And the only province that thought it was Alberta, I think, maybe Saskatchewan initially, and Alberta tried to hold up, but there were billions of dollars on the table. So through a form of fiscal bribery, Trudeau and the rest of the gang figured out how to get Canadians to talk about socialized medicine coast to coast, equality of medical rights coast to coast. It's not in the charter. I think you nailed it. You nailed it there too by saying there was billions of dollars on the table. So there's 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 an element there's an element of guys to everything, right? Like under the these socialists, like you look at Russia, it was a communist country. Well, what else did it have? Gulags, right? You know, these places where anybody who disagreed with the state, which you know, FYI, it's clearly not freedom if you're not allowed to disagree with the state, they went to these places and disappeared. So, and, and where I'm going with this is that we're going to have this, this sort of the socialist Medicare system, but we're going to, we're going to get it through billions of dollars, meaning that, that there's, there's a capitalistic elements there. I mean, look at Hong Kong and China, China's again, a communist country, go to Hong Kong. That's like the capitalist epicenter of the world. It's changing, mm. changing now. China's moving in, man. You know, the idea of one people, two systems is gone now. Democracy is pretty much finished in Hong Kong, which is a real shame. It's been a shining shining light of the free society for so long, 100 years or more, you know? Wow. Sad to see. So here's here's a controversial question. Um, But we talk a lot about decolonization, right? This, This period of how, I mean, you think about how small Britain is on a, on a geographical level, but for a time, the sun never set on the British empire. No, you know? that's right. And then you think about the consequences of colonization and of, you know, turning colonies into essentially just resources that are, are taken from and the consequences that that has happened that echoes to today. I mean, you look at places in Africa and the reason why they struggle so much is because think think about the war in Iraq. You know, America went in there, they tried to stabilize it, and then it wasn't working out, so they pulled shoot. But, but that was a reaction to a real terrorist threat, wasn't it? I mean, and also I like I like to stick with your colonization example, if you don't mind, Please. just for a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I have a very dear black friend whom I've known for 45 years. He's from Jamaica. He came here when he was nine years old. His sister still works in the Jamaican government. And he's a journalist and a really astute guy. And I said to him, listen, I said, would you say that Jamaica was better as a colony or better now? He thought for a few minutes. And you know what he said? We were better off as a colony. Mm. Absolutely. We have better policing, less crime, uh, less poverty, uh, better sewage systems, better water purification, better courts, better government and better schools. There's no question about it in his mind. And I think that's true for a lot of colonies. Who went, who went out on their own. What to call, what to call on the, I'm not saying the colonizers weren't uh, abusing them uh, in many respects, taking too many minerals out or treating them as simply as resource centers. I don't know, but they also brought them railroads, highways, the automobile, clean water, education, courts. Now, now, now I, my counter to that is that if you look at uh, uh, Juan Peron and Eva Peron, was that, was that Argentina? Yeah. Anyways, they they did the whole national. Yeah, well, they weren't a colony, were they? I mean, well, what they were doing, technically they were, 
because Latin America, you know, those were all colonies and they, they created their own independence. Right. And so anyways, my point is, is that Juan and Eva Perón, they nationalized their country. So it means that they bought out the foreign investors. Now, what did that result in a huge deficit because they, they had, you know, they were in a huge debt because they had to buy that out. Where I'm going with this is that these countries that were formerly colonies, you know, to get themselves out, there are extensions of that, right? I mean, you look at, you look at Haiti, again, I, I, I can't verse myself too well in it, but the reason why these countries have struggled is because of how they were treated. You know, I can't say much about it. You know more about it than I do, I'm sure. But right. whatever I know, uh, which, as I say, is limited, it came from my readings. Actually, I've done a fair bit of reading about it. Lord Peter Bauer was one of the finest, uh, I think, um, political analysts of the colonial system and um, and of the th so-called third world, not a term that I like. Developing uh, if, world. If you look into his books, Peter Bauer, B-A-U-E-R. <laughs> you'd really enjoy a fresh perspective on what actually happened during the periods of colonization in so many of these countries and what happened to them afterwards and so on. Um, it's not fresh in my mind right now, but I remember being influenced by, he was such a solid, calm analyst of the situation, you know, which is what you need. There's a lot of emotions on all sides on this kind of question. I'm, I'm gonna go out on the limb and just say, I think a lot of those countries which shook off colonialism have actually declined since, done worse since in many respects. Maybe not all of them. The only example I gave you was Jamaica from a guy who knows a lot about it, whose sister works in the government there. And he's a politically savvy dude here in Canada. He just said, no, we were better off under the English. Yeah. And, and I mean, and this is, this is where it's difficult. And, and again, get me getting, angry or upset or yeah. reactive it doesn't it doesn't make things any better for conversation you know what i mean like no for sure that that will never provide us the illumination that we need you know yeah. it's it's what we do with that frustration or that anger you know raising awareness yeah. reading like you say yeah. and uh i i guess the other piece is in canada you know we're, we're kind of going off here but what is the biggest problem facing Canada today? Oh, man. Well, you know, the first book I ever wrote was called The Trouble with Canada. Right. I don't know if you're familiar with it. 20 years later, I revised it. And that book's called The Trouble with Canada Still. Still. Yeah. And if you would like to do more of these shows, and you don't mind me flagrantly self-promoting, I, I recommend you dip into that book. Every chapter... You got 10 shows in every chapter because it goes into the welfare system, the criminal justice system, um, the, the constitution. I mean, just a ton of stuff. I was just doing my citizen duty. I just wanted to say what I thought needed to be said about Canada and how it had been mutating mm -hmm. over the last 50 years. So I wrote The Trouble with Canada, became number one in Canada three months later and changed my life. I was just on the air all the time like this. Yeah, it's a little different now. I mean, that was, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Well, actually, that's that's a good point that you raised because you were a you're you're an Olympic athlete. Yeah. How did you get yourself into this position where you started speaking about politics and 
and being a well, classical I was, uh, I started as I started out professionally speaking as a professor of English literature and philosophy at York University. Mm -hmm. Then my family's business got in trouble and they went like this, you got to help <laughs> us. So I left I left teaching, uh, regrettably, because I, I think teaching is a noble calling. You're a teacher. It's a wonderful way to live. Uh, and in a way, I teach still because I write books and essays all the time. But I don't have classes anymore, which I really enjoyed. At any rate, uh, I went into the business and then I saw what Pierre Trudeau was doing to Canada, especially with his Charter of Rights and Freedoms, you know, which basically threw the legislative initiative to the courts, whereas I felt it should be, it should stay with the people who represent us. They should be hashing it out, arguing it out every damn day until they mm -hmm. arrive at solutions that are agreeable and, and uh, efficacious, you know. Instead, what a member of parliament does today, she said, oh, we're not going to touch that kick it upstairs to the Supreme Court, let them deal with it, you know? Why, I mean, why, are, why are they doing that? Like, are they afraid of offending people? What's the oh, sort yeah. of... Oh yeah, talk about deplatforming. I mean, they don't, want it, they don't want their reputation to be smeared because they took mm -hmm. an unpopular position. Whereas originally when we decided to go with the parliamentary system, the Westminster system, the idea was that you take the heat, buddy, if you're going to take that job, but with the charter, they can kick it all upstairs because nobody knows what certain words in the charter mean. For example, what does the word equality mean? Nobody knows. Section, section 15 and other sections that have to do with equality in the charter, it'll say what they, the people who wrote it think it means, but they're just abstract words. They get filled in with particulars by judges in the courts. Now, if you have a liberal judge in your court, he'll say it means this. If you have a conservative judge, he'll say it means that. This made us more like the Americans, you know, who are talking ever since uh, the last election about stuffing the court. They want more seats so they can put more liberals on, you know, because what was Trump doing? Trump was stuffing the court with conservative justices. And I, I applauded that because we had too many liberal justices. Now it's a little bit tipped the other way. Democrats are going crazy. They want to increase the number of seats on the Supreme Court of America so they can stuff it with liberal judges. You see, so the legislature is not exactly insignificant, but way less significant than it used to be, both there and here. And it's charters that make that happen because it throws the initiative to the courts on every difficult moral issue in particular. Legislators will not deal with them if they don't have to. It makes them look bad. They don't want to be unpopular, you know? Right. And, and there is that sort of, that degree of placating or whatever. Yeah. The, the other thing too is... Um, so yes, your your opinions are controversial. Um, do you do you see like do, do you ever have points in your life when you're like, okay, you know what, I was wrong about that. Do you, do you ever have moments when you're like, you know what, gay marriage, like so what? They just two people that love each other. Well, I don't know if you want to get into that. I've worked out those arguments uh, elsewhere, uh, pretty effectively, I think. Yeah. Uh, part of what that boils down to is what's love got to do with it. There's all okay. kinds of there's all kinds of bad love, and there's all kinds of good love. Maybe homosexual love is bad love. I'm not going to say that on this show, but I can tell you that our society has been trying to teach us for a couple of thousand years the difference between good love and bad love. For example, self love is bad love. You know. Kleptomania, love of stealing is bad love. Sexual love of little boys is bad love. 
et cetera, et cetera. So it, the, the psychological manual, the DMSA, whatever they call it, you know, the yeah, yeah, yeah. DSM, yeah. DSM that they bring out, you know, is full of uh, words that end with the, the, the uh, Greek term philia. Philia means love, okay? Pedophilia, for example, love of little boys, kleptomania, et cetera. Well, philia is at the end of a lot of words in that book because they're trying to explain types of bad love. The first homosexual I had this argument with, he said, well, you can call it bad love if you want. I said, well, I'm not gonna upset you, but I think that our society has, has tried hard to teach us the difference between good love and bad love. Uh, traditional heterosexual marriage has been considered good love. Why? Um, because we've restricted it to number, gender, age, and incest. We said you can marry one person at a time, not two or three or four, right? Uh, we said it must be someone of the opposite gender. It cannot be someone beneath a certain age, and it cannot be a close blood relative. That has been the four-legged chair on which we built the form of good love that we've always known as heterosexual marriage. And we never spelled it out in the legislature because no one ever felt we had to. It was assumed, everyone agreed. That's the best thing for civil society. And it's the best thing for raising children. You know, not national daycare centers or homosexual homes where they may do the best possible job to raise their kids. I'm not saying they don't but you should not intentionally be depriving any child of a mother or a father in the home. If you, not by law, not if you can help it. Anybody with half a brain would say that the best thing for a child is a loving mother and father in the home. That's the model. And if you wanna live some other way, we're not gonna stop you, mm. but don't ask us to pay for it or give you medals for it. Right, or right. dignified by some kind of label or term, which makes it seem better than it is, or equal to our thousands of years history of heterosexual marriage. It's not equal to it. And it can't be equal because you can't join two penises and two vaginas, you know? So you can't actually have a marriage in the traditional procreative sense. What's procreation got to do with it? Well, mm. what's the preservation of civil society got to do with it? Surely we all have a vested interest in trying to keep our civilization going and keep it alive. We're not going to dictate how many kids you have or I have. What we're going to say, if you throw enough boys and girls together, you're going to have children. Right. There's going to be children. You can throw as many homosexuals together as you want, and there will be no children. Now, I, I guess my question for you is, you know, you've... And, and I can't even speak to this, but somebody might say, and, and, and I'm thinking this, that, well, based on your experiences and your environment and the people that were around you, I mean, you're talking about being in Washington, D.C. And, and thinking this is like an imperial city. It sounds like you were of the more, you know, upper class, if you will. Right. Would that would that kind of make sense why you have these views that other, you know, the masses, let's just say, the, the, the people who are not as in, you know, there's a, there's a, a higher no, percentage of people that are not like that. Is that why you have these? No, these, no, I like to think it has nothing to do with that. Okay. Sure, I was raised in a decent family, a nice family. My grandfather was actually a wealthy man until he went broke, and then he made it all back again. He was a really interesting guy. Yeah. My family was not particularly wealthy when they started. They ended up doing pretty well. I've ended up doing pretty well, even though I was just an English professor. Right. You know, 
I've done well financially too. I'm not ashamed of that. Everybody wants to do well financially if they can. But um, no, those, uh, in my views, go back to Aristotle. What is the good of civil life? And once we decide what the good is, should we not all be supporting that? We have felt for, by the way, Canada's own parliament voted against homosexual marriage three times. People we sent to parliament voted against it outright three times in a row. And then they finally caved because they saw, you know, finger in the wind the way this thing was going. France objected to homosexual marriage. Many European countries still object to homosexual marriage. Canada caved. Why didn't they? Because they said, that's not the good of society. We don't mind a civil union. We don't mind giving them certain rights and benefits as a couple, if you like. But it's not the same as a procreative heterosexual couple because they cannot produce new citizens for our society. And so we're not going to treat them the same. Many have caved. And by the way, France caved. France started resisting this whole thing. No way they were going to go to homosexual marriage. They went, were okay with something they called a civil union. Mm. Canada's own court used the, uh, used the word um, conjugal to justify the idea that a marriage could be between any two persons. Actually, that's a good point. So what is what is the purpose of a marriage? Is it to produce children, to continue on the country? If it weren't, why would we do it? Not for love, because people, <laughs> people, people fall in love all the time, and they fall out of love all the time. Right. We call that divorce when we get into that business. But love has nothing to do with whether or not you have, you have uh, an institution called marriage. The marriage institution is about the continuation of your civilization. Yes, it's nice that they love each other. Yeah. It's nice that they love each other, but you're not going to rest government policy on love, for God's sake, because people fall out of love. And then what? Then we say there's no marriage. Is that your idea? Marriage, love justifies it, and therefore hatred uh, justifies ending it? Yeah, I mean, and again, I mean, this is where we disagree. It's just like, hey, if, for me, it's like if two people love each other and they're not serial killers, you know what I mean? It's just a man and a man and they love each other. They want to live with each other and make memories. It doesn't, it, 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 it's not harming it. me. No, but they, they see, there you go. That's Mill's harm principle, see? <laughs> John Stuart Mill on his harm principle and you're quoting it, see? It's, yeah. in, the public, it's in the public mind, <clears throat> but it's not sufficient to organize mm. an entire society around the idea <clears throat> that you're not harming somebody because first of all, you don't know whether you're harming somebody or not. You could be harming your whole society down the road uh, for example, the first homosexual I had this argument with, nice guy, we had a good debate. <clears throat> he said, why don't you want to give marriage to uh, gay couples? And I said, well, would you give the Victoria Cross to a coward? <gasps> what do you mean? I said, well, would you? He said, no, I wouldn't. Why? He said, because it would tarnish the Victoria Cross. And I said, well, I don't want to tarnish the institution of marriage by giving the institution to people who cannot reproduce and thus defend the... <clears throat> um, uh, defend my society and its uh, existence. Keep it going. I don't mind you living together. I don't think you should be taking my tax dollars for it. You're free to live together. <laughs> I'm not going to say a word about that. I think it's weird, but you don't. Fine. I'm enough a liberal to say, live with who you want. <clears throat> no, but don't no. ask. Don't ask me. Don't ask me to pay for it, fund it, subsidize right. it in the tax system or any other way. So Canada's court. You know what? 
what standard they used for marriage of two persons, any two persons, conjugality. The word conjugal comes from the Latin conjungere, which means to join. Right. Join sexually. You can't join two penises and you can't join two vaginas. So when the court says conjugality, what do they mean? Washing dishes together? Chatting in front of the TV at night? Is that Why would they use the word conjugality for something like that? Yeah. And yet, if they're going to enforce conjugality as a standard for homosexual marriage, what are they going to have? Gay police? They're going to go into your house? and see if you're actually joining, somehow joining with your partner? Yeah, I mean, like that's, again, that's that's something that I think we could get a little bit. Like, I mean, like, yeah, I can go there. We can wanna, go there in the future. I don't want to blow your show up. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, no, no, you're not blowing my show up. Can, man. Canadian, I, can, can, yeah. Canadians haven't faced these fundamental issues. What is conjugality? Well, the term has been used for thousands of years to mean the joining of opposite sexes. You can't yeah. have conjugality of any two persons. Okay, so here's kind of my question though. Like, like a lot of this is is very much we we do have to adapt, or at least that's my belief. You know, my belief is that society it's made of adaptations. The industrial revolution, the agricultural revolution, and we talk about these Faustian sort of agreements that coincide with those. Well, now with the internet, now with information that is so readily available, there are going to be adaptations that need to be made. And the way that you say it is like, you, th th there's this language of classical, right? Of upholding the way that things were and perhaps the things, how they were meant to be back then. But there is a degree of, again, adaptability. And I think in your previous interview, you were speaking about how this guy's like, you know, aren't you on the losing side? What, what are your thoughts about that? Like, is, is this? Yeah, yes, yes. If you ask me how I felt about uh, promoting classically conservative and some libertarian ideals for the last 40 years, I would say I feel like I'm a man who's been standing in a, on a rock in a leftward drifting sea. And in the distance, I see ships drifting to the left and I hear voices. And you know what they're saying? Look, look, there's a man out there drifting to the right. Hmm. I haven't moved. I haven't moved because you're on a rock from air. I'm on a rock. And the rock <laughs> is the fundamental principles of the good life and of natural law from Aristotle right through Burke up to me. Mm. Excuse me for saying that. I don't want to put myself in that class. <laughs> they're, they're wonderful people and they were great minds. And I'm just a guy trying to do his citizen duty. And that's why I wrote The Trouble with Canada. I wanted to wipe my hands of all this. I was prepared to pay 5,000 bucks to publish that book. So I gave it to an editor. Here, clean it up, fix it, choose a cover, nice type style, and I'm done. Well, he called me back two weeks later. He said, I love your book, he said. So I took it down to Canada's largest publisher, and they want to see you at 11 in the morning. Wow, I, wow. I said, what? You know, writer's dream, right? Yeah, so I, went, so, so I went there at 11 the next morning. And the first thing that Jack Stoddard said, he died last year, but he ran Stoddard Publishing, which was a division of General Publishing, which was Canada's largest trade publisher. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, he says. What makes you a conservative or not? Because I'm a liberal, he says, and we feel we have to publish books like this just to, to be open-minded. <laughs> I, I said, Jack, please. I said, why am I a liberal? What am I going to tell you? Well, at the time, Brian Mulroney, the prime minister, was pushing something called national daycare which of course, Justin Trudeau is trying to get off the ground again. 
national daycare was going to be funded by everybody. And even if you had a tennis racket and a mink coat, you got free daycare for your kids. You know, it wasn't like a distinction where right. giving giving to people I call the truly needy, which I support. But I don't support giving free daycare to women from Rosedale and mink coats. <laughs> so anyway, so I said to Jack, I said, Jack, national daycare, because it was in the air then. I said, let's just say you would have to drag me stark naked all across Canada behind a team of horses to get me to admit that government daycare was better than a loving mother and father. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Because it's not, and it can't be. And I wrote a chapter on the daycare issue in a book called The War Against the Family. And that's where I lost a lot of libertarians and and, uh, conservative people who are actually just fiscal conservatives. They're not real conservatives. When I wrote about the attack on the family, which in the West began years ago with, you know, Marx, Engels. Engels wrote a whole book on how the family should be destroyed because it's the birthplace of privacy and privilege. He was writing that in the 19th century. Engels. You know, you know, if you think about that, Engels, what he's saying to destroy the family, that would completely disrupt and change what we are is because we are animals we're just a type of animal we're a strange primate you know that has used stories to get us this far ahead yeah, well i don't agree with that entirely but you go ahead I understand, <laughs> I understand where you're coming from as they say yes yeah and 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 to completely change our nature i mean well now you're talking like a conservative uh, well and, and that's that's Which is just how it. we started the show. Conservatives tend yeah. to believe we're not going to change. So stop screwing around with the laws, trying to force me to change, taking all my money to make it happen. Leave me alone. Get your foot off my neck. That's a conservative view. Mm-hmm. Do we need government? Yeah, but it's like Henry Thoreau said, the best government is the least government. The least, yeah. not, the, not the most. You know, it's, it's, I was going to say, it's funny how we can start a discussion and the best discussions, they never end with resolutions, <laughs> right? It's there, like, there, are, there are possible resolutions. Okay, like, well, and what, do you, what do you think that they are? Well, like do good, avoid evil. Mm-hmm. Might does not make right. All these kinds of things. Small, small, efficient government is better than a massive government that creates a new class of bureaucrats who are just marauding over the people getting into excessive taxation, which I call legal plunder. I'm not against reasonable taxation. I think we set up a flat tax, 17% for everybody. No exceptions, no loopholes, no loopholes. You can do your tax return on the back of a postcard. It's And even the poor will pay a buck. I don't care. Pay something because nobody gets something for nothing. You have to pay. How much? Pay your 17%. Yeah. Instead, we got a situation where we want votes. So we're trying to give all kinds of freebies to the poor and taking almost nothing from them in exchange. So they think these are rights that they have born with rights. And then we soak the hell out of the rich as much as we can. But they have enough money to hire big lawyers and send their money to, <laughs> to the Bahamas. You know what right. I mean? The whole thing's a mess. And with a flat tax, no one's going to complain. I'm happy to pay a flat tax. I wouldn't even look for a way to avoid taxation. Now you, me, everybody tries to do everything they can to avoid excessive taxation. I didn't say evade. I said avoid excessive <laughs> taxation because you have, you have no moral obligation to pay the most tax and neither do I. 
Right. So when you hire your tax guy, I know what you do. You walk into H&R Block and you say, here, here's my, my income statement. Work it out for me the best you can. Right. And what you mean is don't make me pay any more than I have to. Right. Okay, maybe you're filthy rich and you say, I want to pay more. But very few Canadians say that. And by the way, I resist the prevalent public opinion that Canadians are generous by nature. Mm. Traditionally, we are about half as generous as Americans on a per capita basis. If you go to the international philanthropic societies, they will tell you that Canadians in general are a cheesy, stingy people. They do not like to give. They don't like to give. Americans, whom we all accuse of being greedy friggin' capitalists, they open their wallets every chance they get. There's hundreds of thousands of charitable societies down there and institutions helping the poor, helping the disadvantaged, helping the universities. The last time I graduated from Stanford, by the way, my God, who can afford to go to Stanford? Wow. Yeah. Stanford published was a book this thick, this thick, like three inches thick, tiny print of all the grants that are available to Stanford students who qualify. Thousands and thousands of grants, generous people opening their wallets, wanting to help you and me. You know? So that's the kind of society you want. In a free society, people will do that. But in a society like Canada, where the welfare state is kind of singing the song of we do it all for you, right? right. People get stingy. They say, why should I why should I write a check, a check to that charity over there? They got they got support from the Ontario government, the federal government, the municipal government. They're already taking my money. That's the attitude you get. So the welfare state dries up the wellsprings of private giving. That's one of the cases I make in the Trouble with Canada book. Mm. And it shows it in there. All the numbers are in there from philanthropic societies. Canadians are way down here somewhere. Well, and, and for me, I just think that absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's that's what I mean. I, I don't know who said that. Obviously, that's Lord Acton. Lord, Lord Acton said that. And yeah. forgive me for correcting him. Power isn't what corrupts. It's the love of power that corrupts. You need power. Everything based in power. Like I said, the family's based in power of the mother and the father. If they hit heads, it's usually the father who prevails, but not always. And in some societies, it may be the other way around. In your corporation, if you work for one, the president and the board of chairman of the board usually prevails. There's a power structure all the way through it and privileges that go with it. You don't get a, you don't get a key to the executive washroom, but the executive does. Power structures are everywhere. You can't run an army without a power structure. And one of the reasons the world falls apart is because people forget that natural fact of life. Good heavens, in the English Revolution, some of the soldiers who were rebelling against authority, they actually pulled Cromwell aside and they said, listen, they said, we think the general should take orders from the soldiers. <laughs> right? You laugh, because yeah. I laugh too. It's a screwed up thing to say. Yeah. The assumption is the general's there is because he's battle-hardened. He's had successes in battle. He knows what he's doing better than Joe Flunky with the rifle does. Right, right. You know? but he has clout. But that's the kind of thinking you get into in these sorts of egalitarian revolutions, which is certainly what the English Revolution was. The French Revolution, about which I know a little bit, is another thing entirely. And instead of having gulags where they could send you when you get canceled, they just cut off your head. Mm. But it's a lot yeah. cheaper. Or, or, I mean, or, or, or like you also, you think about um, what was happening in the Russian revolution. Yeah. That anybody could just call sure. on anybody. You didn't need any evidence. And it's this perpetual state of fear. 
There's a movie you got to see called The Lives of Others. Have you ever seen it? No. It's called The Lives of Others. It's about the um, uh, it's about German society during the Nazi uh, period, the 12 years of the Nazi period. Mm. Very subtle, interesting movie about how that fear of power, illegitimate power, swept all through society, created spies of all the neighbors, and kind of like what you're seeing with COVID now, where people are snitching on their neighbors. They see too many people behind the barbecue. Their neighbors that happened come. to me. Our, our, our neighbor yeah, called us, and the cops showed up. That's what I mean. So even though this COVID thing is only half true, my friend calls it a panic demic. It's a great word, a panic demic. Okay. It's half panic, half epidemic. Well, Not there's, even. yeah. The... And what a scandal, man. We haven't looked after the old. Oh, Evans. man. Evans, yeah. I'm, 80, I'm 80 years old. Unfortunately, I'm not in an institution. But I have to tell you, I, it, it's a disgrace. And I heard from people who know, financial analysts who know, that if we took all the money that Trudeau was throwing around over COVID, that's enough money to take every senior citizen in Canada out of whatever home they're in and put them in a first-class hotel room with 24-hour care for a year. Every one of them. So well, why, I was, did we, why did we I was, do that? I was just speaking to somebody who's 98 years old yeah. uh, and doing an interview with them. And he's just like, dude, I feel like I'm in a, pr-. well, he didn't say dude. He, he said, I feel like I'm in a prison. He is. He is. Those places. You can't see them. They can't get out. It's a and, 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 and a true democracy, yeah. you measure it on how, you measure it on the education and how we take care of our old, those that got us to where we are. Yeah. Well, I you think. don't need a democracy for that. Mm, that's society. society they do that in right. healthy functioning civil society they do that doesn't matter how sophisticated or primitive it is you know if it has the care of others if the if the good of all precedes my good hmm. then people make the right choices let's do what's good you know when i was a kid what you call democracy i'm not saying it always happened but generally speaking the thrust was when you go to the polls you try to vote on what you think would be good for the country, not just good for you. But now all that's gone. Now it's just people voting their special interests, you know, and legislators. Well, I speak for my constituents, not I speak for Canada. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and there's no denying that lobbyism isn't happening in our country. You know? Crazy. Yeah, it's, it, it is. That's something that we can agree on, my friend. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, William, we I- We uh, more than you think. <laughs> yes, agree and, more than you think, and and I do think that these conversations need to happen, yeah. right? Because, like like you said, there needs to be a balance of power. Yeah. You know, it's not just this way or that way. It's not just mandatory tolerance. Yeah. You know, mandatory tolerance. There there does need to be conversations. Um, so, what's what's the most recent book that you've uh, you've published that audiences can okay. This one is called The French Traveler. It's a translation with my own notes of an 18th century book about exploration and travel in 18th century Canada. Anybody who loves that period of history, exploration in early Canada, is going to love that book. It's a great read. And the other book, which came out after The Great Divide, is called Disruptive Essays. It's a collection of a lot of what I consider my best writing but which is unavailable to most people because it's in academic journals or mm. a newspaper somewhere that they're never going to find. So I put them all between two covers here. And I think your listeners might enjoy them. 
and I've got your email, right? Yeah. And you're going to read The Trouble with Canada still. I will. Uh, if you do, when you do, you're going to want to talk again. Okay. So I'm going to send you a two-page summary of the key points in that book. And Wonderful. any one of them, any one of them is enough to blow your <laughs> right up, you know. You got it. Thank you very much. And uh, William, take care. Thank you. You take care, man. Once again, that was William Gardner, author of The Great Divide, a book that looks at the, the nature of the argument and the competition, the, the combat, if you will, between liberals and conservatives and how this, this fight will just keep going on. But at the same time, kind of like Batman and Joker, they kind of need each other. You know, there's, there's, this, there's this, uh, this concept of the left hand washes the right, the right hand washes the left. And in our society, I, I really feel like we're getting this divide is becoming a chasm because we're not having these conversations. We're just kind of shutting each other down or calling each other out. And I think that the extreme ends of the spectrum, you know, cancel culture on the left and whatever the hell's going on on the right, they're both wrong, in my opinion. And it's because they're not, they're not trying to understand. You know, when you say to somebody like, what the hell's the matter with you? You're not helping them. You're not educating them. And in fact, you're reinforcing perhaps that bad behavior, right? We can't be judge, jury, and executioner. I think we do in some cases, maybe not all, you know, probably not, definitely not in all, but in some cases we do have to give people the benefit of the doubt. And again, you will notice that in this conversation, I didn't agree with everything that William said, but I never attacked his character and I never, I, I never became aggressive. I just, I, I was seeking to understand. And this is something that we need to do as a society, people. We're never always going to agree. Could you imagine if we just agreed on everything? Good Lord, that'd be crazy. It'd be crazy. So we need to work on coming from a place of understanding. Thank you so much for listening. I truly appreciate you in, in your time and in giving this. And I hope you got something out of it. If you did, please be sure to drop us a line. Uh, we we, we want to hear about you because we do this for you. You know, I, I want to hear that people are getting something out of it or that they're they're questioning the whole thing and they want to tell me that this is stupid. I don't care, man. Let me know. You know, I appreciate you. So, and I've said that many times and I'm going to keep saying that until you understand that I do definitely appreciate you. <laughs> Anywho, that was William Gardner. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed and uh, yeah, have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.